For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. An incredible new marketing partner today at Transmedia Worldwide. Check out kickstarter.com. Kickstarter.com, your freedom mask. Show your face! The new innovative U.S. patent pending design incorporates two high-efficiency KN95 filters. It's fully transparent. It's available at kickstarter.com. That's K-I-C-K-S-T-A-R-T-E-R.com. Search your freedom mask. Show your face! And tell them you heard about it here. Transmedia Worldwide. An incredible new marketing partner with us today in Transmedia Worldwide. Introducing Jacques Neal, a fresh and new watch company with beautiful trend-setting watches and an affordable price. Follow us on Instagram, Jacques Neal Watches. Support the campaign at Indiegogo.com. Search Jacques Neal. Affordable, quality, beautiful watches. That's I-N-D-I-E-G-O-G-O.com. And tell them you heard about it here. Transmedia Worldwide. Jacques Neal. Incredible new marketing partner with us today, Transmedia Worldwide. Kickstarter.com is the place to go because Black Lives Matter. Go over. Grow Connect. Oh, that's right. We need you to check this one out today. It is Grow Connect, a delivery and sharing economy app that will allow farmers to sell quality produce and land rentals directly to quality-driven consumers and potential land tenants, creating a friendly, rewarding, and efficient relationship between those who produce food, small and medium-sized farmers, and those who buy it, as well as those who want land to farm or garden on it. Check it out today. It's kickstarter.com. Search Grow Connect, connecting farmers to consumers, and tell them you heard about it here. Transmedia Worldwide. Incredible new marketing partner with us today at Transmedia Worldwide. Check out coffeesoundsgood.org. That's right, coffee does sound good right now. Check out coffeesoundsgood.org. They have got everything you could ever think of available over there, and they have a special sale right now. Through the end of August, 20% off everything in store. It's coffeesoundsgood.org. Coffee does sound good over there at coffeesoundsgood.org. Check it out today and tell them you heard about it here. Transmedia Worldwide. Welcome back to the world-famous Chiggy Jaguar Radio Broadcast. Thanks for tuning in to the big broadcast from wherever you're tuning in to us. From the KJAG Radio Studios in downtown Hutchinson, Kansas, we are live Monday through Friday at 2 Central, 3 Eastern, 12 Pacific, and 1 PM Mountain Standard. And of course, 24-7 at JiggyJaguar.com. On the TuneIn apps, Radio Loyalty. Also, our podcast is available on demand with iHeartRadio. Live Twitch video on our supersonic website. Add us as a friend on Twitch. Give us a five-star review over at TalkShoe.com, and selected editions will be available on AMFM247.com. 50-plus AMFM stations in the big network and live video available on Twitch TV, Periscope, Facebook Live, and Chatterbay. You can follow us at Facebook.com slash Jaguar. Find our daily videos uploaded at YouTube.com slash J-I-G-G-Y-J-A-G-U-A-R. 
Wherever you're tuning in to us, thank you. iHeartRadio, 50-plus AM FM stations across the country and around the world. Thanks for tuning in and being part of the big program. We've got a great guest and a great segment coming up here in just a few moments. But the Jiggy Jaguar radio broadcast is brought to you by our fabulous, fabulous friends over there at coffeesoundsgood.org. That's right. Coffee sounds good. Check it out today at coffeesoundsgood.org. Because coffee does sound good right now. Go over to C-O-F-F-E-E-S-O-U-N-D-S. G-O-O-D dot O-R-G. It's coffee at your doorstep. You need to go over there right now. It's coffee sounds good dot O-R-G. Coffee, t-shirts, and apparel. Everything one-stop shop over there at coffee sounds good dot O-R-G. Coffee sounds good. It is going viral. And we want you to be a part of it. Over there at coffeesoundsgood.org. Shop now. The latest trends, accessories, appliances, everything you could possibly find is over there at coffeesoundsgood.org. Shop now for the latest trends, accessories, and appliances. You can do everything you need to do at coffeesoundsgood.org. Buy your gift now and receive absolutely free shipping. Check it out today. C-O-F-F-E-E-S-O-U-N-D-S-G-O-O-D dot O-R-G. That's copysoundsgood.org. Columbia, the capital of South Carolina. And uh, after high school, I went to the University of South Carolina on a football scholarship. And, and from 1980 to 1984 was... Um, I played football at the University of South Carolina, and um, I uh, had always been a huge wrestling fan. I grew up just crazy about wrestling, and um, I had decided probably my junior year in college that whenever football ended for me, if it was after an NFL career or if it was after college, but whenever football was over, I was going to pursue a career in professional wrestling. Now. Yeah. After my senior year at South Carolina, which was 1984, uh, I had a couple of uh, opportunities to play in the NFL. In 85, I was in camp with the um, Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and then in 86, I was in camp with the Atlanta Falcons. And it just didn't work out for me. I I, I never made an active roster. Um, Made it through the preseason both times, but just was never on that opening day roster. And um, so once it was clear that the NFL was just not going to be an option for me, that's when I changed gears and changed my mindset and um, went to work trying to become a professional wrestler. And I was fortunate that in my hometown of Columbia, South Carolina, there was a school that trained wannabe professional wrestlers. And it was owned and operated by one of the most famous lady wrestlers of all time, the fabulous Moolah. That's awesome. That's awesome. And uh, so back then, uh, to go through the wrestling school, it was 1500 bucks. So I um, I gathered up 1500 bucks and had a set down with Moolah. And um, 
And it started from there. Now, I will say this, that her school was geared more toward women. She had had a lot of very successful and very famous lady professional wrestlers that had come out of her school, but she had never done that with a man or a male. And fortunately, I was able to have a very successful career. Uh, but the only guy that ever went to her school that did, it was really mainly geared toward, towards women. But uh, it gave me the basic knowledge that I needed uh, to set off and, and pursue my career and try to make a name for myself in the business. Well, now, Mr. Wilkes here is being pretty modest. He's not talking much about his college football career. Oh, yeah. He was, that, that... Oh, he was a, <laughs> he was a friggin' stud. He was one of four people that attended the University of South Carolina. That was a consensus All-American. And, I mean, it's a bunch of, like, heavy duties like George Rogers. He had Melvin Ingram, Jadavian Clowney. I think it's so cool you got to share the stage with Bob Hope. That is, like, awesome in my book. I just, I remember those, and I loved it. When I read that, I was like, then I seen the picture of it. And then I also heard that you almost ended up going to the enemy there in South Carolina, but you ended up with the South Carolina Gamecocks instead of the enemy. I did. And uh, I, the, um, the Clemson part, let me, let me go back to it first, and then I'll yeah. cover the Bob Hope show later. I, uh, I was born and, and, and raised here in Columbia, and uh, been here all my life with the exception of five years. And that was in 1973 to 1978. And my dad moved our family to Calhoun, Georgia. He went to work in a the ministry there. And um, so I um, played Pop Warner football there. And then um, my uh, ninth grade year, my freshman year in high school, I started for Calhoun High School and uh, played everything, linebacker, running back. I punted, I kicked off, I returned punts, I returned kicks, I did it all. Wow. And um, one day I'm in history class and uh, the uh, lady in the office comes over the phone and pages me and said I needed to report to the head football coach's office. So immediately I'm thinking I've done something wrong and I'm in trouble. But when I got to the head coach's office, he introduced me to a guy named Clyde Wren. And at the time, Clyde was a recruiting coordinator for Clemson and uh, he introduced himself to me and gave me a bunch of literature and he said Dale he said we feel like just a few years down the road that you could really be a, a big time player for us at Clemson and, and be a contributor and be a star and he said uh, we're hot on your trail and we're not going to let up until signing day comes around three years down the road and that made a big impression on me now I grew up a Gamecock fan and uh, so that was hard to overcome, even though I grew up a Gamecock fan. When you're in the ninth grade and the recruiting coordinator at a major university here in America is approaching you about playing football for that university, that makes a long-lasting impression. And um, when I took my official visit to Clemson my senior year in high school, uh, that morning, after the, Friday, the Sunday morning after the Friday, Saturday night game, I met with Danny Ford, who was the head coach at Clemson at the time. And I said, Coach, I said, I'm going to spend the next four years here at Clemson. I want to be a Tiger. And um, 
Jim Collin was the head coach at the University of South Carolina, and this was way before the Internet and Facebook and Twitter and social media. Somehow he got wind of the fact that I had committed to Clemson, and he called me on the phone and within 10 minutes had talked me out of it, and I uh, recommitted to South Carolina and a few weeks later signed with the Gamecocks and never regretted it, never looked back. It was four of the greatest years in my life. Wow. Now, yeah. Dale, I was going to, like, the um, South Carolina part kind of following us. I, I listened to your um, interview you had with um, Sean Mooney on his podcast, and that's where I got mm-hmm. this from. But did you, um, was Calhoun still the coach there when you started, or was it the year after that Joe Morrison came in? When I got to South Carolina? Yeah, because it says that Joe Morrison. Um, ended up being the coach there on it, but you were kind of tentative because you had committed with the coach before. Well, what had happened was I um, uh, I signed with the, with the Gamecocks and played my freshman and sophomore year, which was 80-81. Okay. Now, um, in 80, we had a Heisman Trophy winner, George Rogers. We had a very good football team. We went 8-4. and four. But the reason, even though I grew up in a Gamecock household and everybody – and my family and extended family were all Gamecock fans. Many graduated from South Carolina. Uh, in the end, what drew me and what made me commit to South Carolina was Jim Collin, the head coach. And uh, he got fired after the 81 season, which was my sophomore year. Now, he had had a long, long-standing feud going on with the university president, a guy named James Holderman. We went six and six in, in 81, my sophomore year, a very respectable six and six. And he got fired after that year, and it had nothing to do with football. It was all about that rivalry and that deep, intense hatred between Coach Collin and the president, James Holderman. So when Coach Collin got fired, the only coach that lost his job on the staff was Coach Collin. The entire coaching staff, with the exception of him, was kept intact and they moved our defensive coordinator up to head coach. And that just did not set well with me. It just left a horrible taste in my mouth. I was just really, I was just fed up with football. I was confused. It just wasn't the way I thought this thing was going to work out. So I did not play the 82 season. And then Coach Bell got fired after that one year. And, um, uh, the guy that took Carter's place, and after he got fired to end the 82 season, Joe Morrison was named the head coach, Okay, and he requested a set-down with me, and that's when I decided to go back and play 83 and 84. I hope that all makes sense. Oh, it does now like that. I was trying to figure out where the gap was on that because I yeah. heard you talk about some of the other stuff, but I was looking online. I couldn't find the gap on it, but – I was surprised. You just always struck me as the type with your body type and stuff. I would have thought you to be a defensive end because you're you're tall, you're built, and everything, and you're fast. And I was it, it, I I was kind of surprised that you're an offensive lineman. I know you played both ways for a while in high school, but I was just like, you just struck me as a defensive end. Well, I appreciate that, and I certainly take that as a compliment. And uh, oh yeah, when I. Uh, when I got to, um, um, you know, South Carolina, uh, I, I played offensive tackle in high school and linebacker. And then when I got to South Carolina, uh, they moved me inside from tackle to guard. And uh, I loved, I loved playing offensive line. 
you know, when you're an offensive lineman and a defensive lineman, those are the only two groups of guys on the field for every play. There is physical hand-to-hand combat. One guy's trying to physically dominate the other guy. Quarterbacks can go can go many plays without being touched. So can wide receivers. Uh, not every play does a running back carry the football. But the two groups that will engage in physical combat every snap are your offensive and defensive linemen. And uh, I always thought that as offensive linemen, we were just a cut above. I felt like we were just a tad bit smarter than the defensive linemen. And I love that mental game as well as the physical game. So I love being an offensive lineman. Oh, it's tough because you guys didn't get to use your hands like the defense did. You had to be a you had to be a better on the that drop step and be ready for everything because you couldn't like just use your hands to get people out of the way. You had to post and everything. It's yeah, the offensive linemen are the un, unsung heroes. So, you know, when I was in high school, now by the time I got to college, college football was different. But while I was in high school, uh, you're exactly right. An offensive lineman could not extend his arms to pass block. You literally had to grab your jersey, and it looked like 1945 football. You're grabbing your jersey with your hands around your breast, and then you're having to pass block that way. You could not use your arms uh, to create that separation and to create that punch. An incredible new marketing partner today at Transmedia Worldwide. Check out kickstarter.com kickstarter.com your freedom mask show your face the new innovative u.s patent pending design incorporates two high efficiency kn95 filters it's fully transparent it's available at kickstarter.com that's k-i-c-k-s-t-a-r-t-e-r.com search your freedom mask show your face and tell them you heard about it here transmedia worldwide an incredible new marketing partner with us today at Transmedia Worldwide. Introducing Jacques Neal, a fresh and new watch company with beautiful trend-setting watches and an affordable price. Follow us on Instagram, Jacques Neal Watches. Support the campaign at Indiegogo.com. Search Jacques Neal. Affordable, quality, beautiful watches. That's I-N-D-I-E-G-O-G-O.com. And tell them you heard about it here. Transmedia Worldwide. Jacques Neal. Incredible new marketing partner with us today. Transmedia Worldwide. Kickstarter.com is the place to go because Black Lives Matter. Go over. Grow Connect. Oh, that's right. We need you to check this one out today. It is Grow Connect, a delivery and sharing economy app that will allow farmers to sell quality produce and land rentals directly to quality-driven consumers and potential land tenants, creating a friendly, rewarding, and efficient relationship between those who produce food, small and medium-sized farmers, and those who buy it, as well as those who want land to farm or garden on it. Check it out today. It's kickstarter.com. Search Grow Connect, connecting farmers to consumers, and tell them you heard about it here. Transmedia Worldwide. Incredible new marketing partner with us today at Transmedia Worldwide. Check out coffeesoundsgood.org. That's right, coffee does sound good right now. Check out coffeesoundsgood.org. They have got everything you could ever think of available over there, and they have a special sale right now. 
through the end of August. 20% off everything in store. It's copysoundsgood.org. Copy does sound good over there at copysoundsgood.org. Check it out today and tell them you heard about it here. Transmedia Worldwide. Incredible new marketing partner with us today at Transmedia Worldwide. Check us out each and every day at JiggyJaguar.com. That's J-I-G-G-Y-J-A-G-U-A-R.com. Also, 50-plus AM FM stations across the country and around the world. iHeartRadio as well. We have got a brand-new marketing partner with us today at Transmedia Worldwide. Check out Supportful.com. That's Supportful.com. Search medical expenses brianna's cancer journey can also be followed at brianna cancer journey 1820 on instagram go over and check that out today the amazing brianna is with us today we need you to go give her some of your hard-earned money today at supportful.com we're trying to raise money for the daughter brianna she's fighting cancer for the second time since 2018 she's a patient at joe dimaggio children's hospital in hollywood florida and She's raising Brianna by herself. It's getting hard because she had to stop working full-time to become a caretaker. She beat kidney cancer 2019. Now she's got one kidney, and now she's fighting lung cancer this year, 2020. We need you to go over to supportful.com, search medical expenses, and give them some of your hard-earned money today and tell them you heard about it here, Transmedia Worldwide. Next segment coming up right now. Uh, you know, to deliver to a defensive lineman. So it was doubly tough that way. Oh, yeah, that's thing there. Um, from there, you went and trained with the fabulous Moolah. When did you end up with um, Vern Gagne up in the AWA as the trooper? Because I, I honestly loved that gimmick. Well, I appreciate it. It, it was uh, sort of a funny story how that happened, but I was um, – working a lot of uh, Moolah would run some small shows around the Midlands of South Carolina. And they were always in front of, you know, if we had a hundred people, man, we were just, I mean, giddy and beside ourselves. It was always very small crowds, but it was an opportunity to get into the ring and get in front of a crowd, no matter how small it was. And to just work a match instead of just doing bumps and learning how to take bumps it, like we did at the facility. So on one of her shows here in Columbia, she brought in Wahoo to, to work um, main event against one of her guys. And Wahoo, at the time, he still had his permanent home in Charlotte, but he was working for Vern in the AWA, working for Vern and Greg Gagne. And uh, he was still wrestling. He was helping do some booking and some creative things. But he had come to Charlotte for a few weeks just to, you know, come back to his home and uh, hang out there for a while. So she had him booked on one of her shows, and I met Wahoo. And uh, we immediately had just, I mean, right off the bat, a, a tremendous friendship. And I think the background we both had in football had a lot to do with it. And um, so he, um, we talked a long time that night, and he said, look, man, he said, uh, you know, in about a week, I'm getting ready to fly back to Minnesota. He said, we got a lot of shows coming up. And uh, he said, so I'm going to tell Vern about you. And uh, and sure enough, uh, a couple of weeks later, I get a call from Wahoo uh, and Vern. And uh, Wahoo had put in a good word for me. And um, so Vern wanted me to come up and, and, and start working for him in the AWA. Now, at the time, the AWA was literally on life support. 
at one time it was one of the best territories in the business, but it wasn't that way. This and this was the late 80s, 88, 89. Uh, we had ESPN every Monday through Friday from four to five o'clock. So that was it. It was just basically a TV company. And, um, the way I got the trooper gimmick is one of the guys that hung out there at Moolah's that helped train me, um, his nine to five job was he was a deputy sheriff for the neighboring county or in the neighboring county where Moolah was located. And when he would work these weekend shows for Moolah, he would work as the super trooper, what was just an extension of his, his career as a, as a deputy sheriff. That's and cool. uh, so he would be dressed up in his cop outfit and everything. Well, he called me while I was in Minneapolis working for Vern and Wahoo and Greg. And he said, dude, he said, if I send you some of my highlights on a, on a tape, he said, would you give it to Vern and let them take a look at it? I said, sure, mail it to me. So he did, and when I got it, I took it to Vern and said, hey, this is one of the guys that helped train me. He wanted me to give this to you. So a couple of days later, Vern called me, and he said, we need you to come over to the office. He said, Wahoo and Greg, and I want to talk to you. So when I got there, uh, they said, you know the cake that you gave us a few days ago? I said, yeah. He said, that guy stinks. He's horrible. He needs to keep his nine-to-five job as a deputy sheriff. But we like, we like the gimmick. And we think you you look like, you sound like that old typical Southern Highway Patrolman. This square jawed looking guy with a with a southern accent. And uh he said, We've come up with the idea of the trooper. And uh so we wanna put the gimmick on you and let him stay in South Carolina and, and keep his day job. So that's where the idea come come was from Greg and Wahoo and Vern, they all put their heads together and minds together, and they came up with the idea from the beginning. So how did the pairing with you and DJ Peterson end up? Because Peterson was real familiar down here in our neck of the woods because he was a big hit with the Geigel promotion and then was up there. How did you guys end up getting paired together? You know, I don't remember exactly how it had happened. I had, I had tag teamed with, with, with a couple of different guys uh in the AWA, you know, I had that had that um short little um angle was the was the best go where uh, I worked him a couple of times for the AWA belt. He had the belt at the time. And um so then they um, had me with Paul Diamond for uh, for a while as a tag team partner. Then they had me with Brad Ringan for a little while as a tag team partner. Uh and then they approached me about putting DJ and I together. And uh, and I enjoyed working with DJ. He he'd been around longer than I had. He was more seasoned, had more experience, so it was helpful to me in that I could learn some things from him. Unfortunately, again with the company and the financial situation it was in, and just barely barely it had a pulse. Um, they put the tag team belts on DJ and I, but it was shortly thereafter that the company completely folded. And uh, we were the last tag team champs in the AWA. And then a few years later, unfortunately, DJ lost his life on a motorcycle accident. Uh, you know, gone way too young. He was a good man. He was a hell of a talent, too. Now, from the AWA, you went, and um, this, you, I know you're not going to remember me, but I remember you. I was training with the promotion here in Kansas. Burt Prentice ran it, and... Um, it was about the point where I had to stop because I was 
I was terrible at taking bumps. I was giving myself concussions. But you came in for a little short time here as the master of pain. It was, I think, just before you went to Global. And Jiggy, he, Dell is probably the nicest guy. He's massive, but yeah. probably the nicest guy. I mean, he trained with us a few times. Super nice. I mean, um, Dan Adams um, knows you better. And it was funny, years after that, we were up at Des Moines, Iowa at a raw taping. And um, we were dropping off tapes to see if they could use us for anything, whether security or whatever, um, down here in Wichita when they came through. And it was the night you were having your first dark match. I think it was with Billy Gunn or something. But, yeah, you see Dan and me backstage and yelled at Dan. Like I said, you knew him a little bit better. And you're like, hey, what are you, too stuck up? And we were like, we had no idea you were going to be there. And it was just like, that was so nice. I mean, Dan was like smiling like a little kid all the way home back to Kansas after that. But it was like, we were all giddy because we knew the Patriot was in the WWF before anybody else did pretty much. So <laughs> That's a cool story. I, um, I had forgot about that Master of Pain gimmick. And, um, you know, before I went to the AWA doing the Trooper gimmick, I had a brief stay over in uh, Mid-South where Lawler and, and Jared okay. ran that promotion and, and owned it. And um, they, uh, you know, the, the first gimmick that Moolah put on me, uh, I broke into the business and, and, and trained at Moolah's with a guy that I had known for a number of years that graduated from the Citadel the military college in Charleston, South Carolina. And uh, we broke in together and trained together. And so she put just plain, simple, plain red mask on us and called us the mask grapplers. Now, I'm in uh, Mid-South, and uh, the first gimmick that Lawler puts on me, it's a mask guy called the Dream Weaver. And my finish was a sleeper hold, and their business was horrible as well. So they were trying to do anything they could to generate more business and more looks and uh, more interest. So shortly I did that for a brief period of time. And then they put a mask on me again, this time just a plain white mask. And they tag teamed Scott Steiner and I together. And we were called the wrestling machines. And we both just wore the simple white mask. Now with that master of pain gimmick, was I under a hood or was it just, it was, it was just regular. You didn't have a hood on. I mean, you pretty much had just like, um, Oh, black long tights. You're, it was kind of like, it was almost like to a point, it wasn't the exact same tights you used as the trooper, but I mean, your hair had grown down a little bit more then, and you were just, like I say, you were just, you were a, a heel then, but you were the nicest guy. You and Adrian Street were two of the nicest guys I met that whole time I was there. But that stuff. Well, I appreciate anyway. it. But yeah, Dan no. was so giddy coming back. From that, he was the he had kind of like the longer blonde hair and the little porn mustache going on. Younger kid, he would have been like nineteen, right. twenty at that time. But man, he was just so giddy coming back from Iowa when we seen you backstage. He was thrilled to death you remembered him, and then he was. We were more thrilled to death both of us that we knew you were going to be premiering up there. <laughs> well, that's neat. Now, and you may have mentioned this. Now, when uh, when I met you guys out in. Uh, Wichita, where you you guys were working for Burt Prentice, is that correct? Correct. It was that Universal Championship Wrestling thing he was running for a while there. Yeah, he, um, I drove out there one time uh, 
to do a series of shows with Wahoo and Ray Stevens. And, um, um, and I think I went back a couple of other times working out there, but I certainly do remember that. And, uh, so it wasn't too long was, after that that you ended up in Global. So, and Bert had a I little bit you. of a thing going with him too. So, I got you. Yeah, I, uh, I had, I had met Bert uh, in Columbia working one of Moolah's shows. Um, we were going to work Fort Jackson, which is, I think, one of the largest military or army training bases in America, and it's right here in Columbia, and. Um, so we were going to work a show, and only the, um, uh, the the enlistees, the guys that were guys and girls that were going through boot camp, could attend, and they were dying for entertainment. And I'm sure we didn't put on the best show because we were all just greenhorns then. But uh, they were dying for some kind of entertainment and something other than a drill sergeant just dog cussing them and carrying on. And uh, so we had a great crowd that night, and it was the first time that I'd ever met. Bert and uh, funny story my parents uh, they weren't the happiest in the world when I decided to break into the wrestling business and uh, they just didn't think it would end up being anything and it wasn't a real job and uh, and I can understand that feeling it was just concern for their oldest son and so I finally talked them into going to one of my matches and I had been, you know, working long, and it was the one at Fort Jackson. And Moolah had decided that Bert was going to be the manager that night for me and my buddy that I told you about that graduated from the Citadel. Now, we're two big, muscular, burly guys, and uh, we're heels, so, you know, we've got this cocky strut about us. And then out comes Bert, who had sparkles in his hair and had lipstick on and was doing this very effeminate character uh, as our manager. And, boy, that crowd just went nuts. I mean, oh, they I bet they up. hated it. <laughs> oh, they did. And what was worse was afterwards when the show was over and I went to see my mom and dad. My dad said, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> he said, you've got to be kidding me. He said, this is what you drug us out here to see. He said, I'm ashamed of you. He said, I'm so embarrassed. He said, thank God none of my friends or any of our family were here to see this. And he said, if this is what you want to do, he said, you do it. But I'll have nothing. He said, I won't be a part of it. And, uh, so, But uh, he eventually got over it, and, and they were fine with everything. But that particular night, just uh, just the appearance of the very effeminate acting and, you know, Bert just, uh, you know, um, you know, shaking his butt as he walked around the ring and all that just infuriated my dad and mom. Yeah, Bert Prentice is definitely a different person. He he knows the business, yep. but definitely a different person. Yeah, he does. He's got a good mind for the business. Sure does. So, Sorry, so uh, we've got uh, the Patriot, Del Wilkes, with us tonight uh, here on the Thursday Night Wrestling Show. Uh, one of the things that I've always wondered, and I... and I've known you for several years, and I just have never, ever asked you about this. But uh, when WWE did the Mr. America thing in 2003, what did you think of that? When it ended up being Hogan under the hood and everything. Yeah, I I had no problem with it. I mean, I had been out of the business for a while then, and I totally understood and still do that wrestling does things like that. Yeah. 
yeah. you know, in the course of, a, of an angle or, or um, you know, whatever reason, they will, they'll put a guy under a mask and we're not supposed to know who he is, but we all know who he is. I think, remember when they did, <laughs> when Dusty did that, I think it was Crockett Promotions put him under a mask and he was oh, a long yeah. rider or something. An incredible new marketing partner today at Transmedia Worldwide. Check out kickstarter.com. Kickstarter.com, your freedom mask. Show your face! The new innovative U.S. patent pending design incorporates two high-efficiency KN95 filters. It's fully transparent. It's available at Kickstarter.com. That's K-I-C-K-S-T-A-R-T-E-R.com. Search your freedom mask. Show your face! And tell them you heard about it here. Transmedia Worldwide. An incredible new marketing partner with us today in Transmedia Worldwide. Introducing Jacques Neal, a fresh and new watch company with beautiful trend-setting watches and an affordable price. Follow us on Instagram, Jacques Neal Watches. Support the campaign at Indiegogo.com. Search Jacques Neal. Affordable, quality, beautiful watches. That's I-N-D-I-E-G-O-G-O.com. And tell them you heard about it here. Transmedia Worldwide. Jacques Neal. Incredible new marketing partner with us today, Transmedia Worldwide. Kickstarter.com is the place to go because Black Lives Matter. Go over. Grow Connect. Oh, that's right. We need you to check this one out today. It is Grow Connect, a delivery and sharing economy app that will allow farmers to sell quality produce and land rentals directly to quality-driven consumers and potential land tenants, creating a friendly, rewarding, and efficient relationship between those who produce food, small and medium-sized farmers, and those who buy it, as well as those who want land to farm or garden on it. Check it out today. It's kickstarter.com. Search Grow Connect, connecting farmers to consumers, and tell them you heard about it here. Transmedia Worldwide. Incredible new marketing partner with us today at Transmedia Worldwide. Check out coffeesoundsgood.org. That's right, coffee does sound good right now. Check out coffeesoundsgood.org. They have got everything you could ever think of available over there, and they have a special sale right now. Through the end of August, 20% off everything in store. It's coffeesoundsgood.org. Coffee does sound good over there at coffeesoundsgood.org. Check it out today and tell them you heard about it here. Transmedia Worldwide. Welcome back to our big broadcast. We are live on iHeartRadio, AMFM247.com. Replay on the mix on Tuesdays. Sunday radio broadcast, 2 to 4 Central, 3 to 5 Eastern each and every Sunday. And find us at J-I-G-G-Y-J-G-Y-R.com. Add us as a friend on Twitch. Also, selected editions available on AMFM247.com. 50-plus AMFM stations on the big network. And live video available on Twitch TV, Periscope, Facebook Live, and Chatterbite. You can follow us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the Jiggy Jaguar. Find our daily videos uploaded to YouTube and Monday through Friday, 2 Central, 3 Eastern, 12 Pacific, 1 PM Mountain Standard. And of course, find us at J-I-G-G-Y-G-G-U-A-R.com. A great new marketing partner with us today at Transmedia Worldwide. Fundraiser.com slash please help abandoned cats that's right 20 to 30 stray cats have been starving during the covid 19 pandemic and we need to help please support us to make 
all cat lives matter over there at fundraiser.com slash please help abandoned cats that is f-u-n-d-r-a-z-r dot com slash P-L-E-A-S-E-H-E-L-P-A-B-A-N-D-O-N-E-D-C-A-T-S dot com. Tell them today it's fundraiser.com slash please help abandoned cats. And tell them you heard about it here. Hand me over what? Yes, yes. But I had no problem with it. I was uh, I was perfectly fine with it. And it was the same way with when Kurt Angle started coming out to the same music that I, that I had used. Yeah. Um, you know, he got that music the same way I got it. WWE Creative came to me with it. They played me a, a list of songs. I chose that one, and we went with that one as my ring music. <laughs> and I'm sure they did the same thing with Kurt. So, you know, I had no problem with any of those things. So, well, see that—that's the thing. Uh, so, take me through this. Um, I heard this story several years ago. The honky tonk man tells a story about how he bought the Patriot gimmick and gave it back to you because somebody else had it or was running around with it. What? Fill me in on this. Well, because I must have missed all, this whole damn thing. <laughs> I must have been living under a rock when this was going on. I, I, I've never sold the gimmick to anyone. I've never given anyone permission to use it. Yeah. Uh, what Wayne What Wayne told me, um, Honky Tonk Man, yeah. was, uh, you know, when I, when I had those series of injuries and had to retire, and then I went through some personal hardships, uh, uh, as a result of those injuries and, and you know, yeah. just the battle of the pain medication and opiates. And so when I got out of the wrestling business for about eight years, I was out. I mean, I fell off the face of the planet. I, I was yeah. just trying to get my life together and, and recoup and figure out what I was going to do next. So I, no one knew how to get a hold of me, and I was perfectly fine with that. <laughs> so Wayne's story is, that they were doing an overseas tour for about a week, and he wanted to use the Patriot, and he claimed he could not get a hold of me. So he obtained the rights to advertise my character only on posters in the towns that they were running, and I think they may have been in, in the U.K. Yeah. And that was it. That was the only thing that he ever legally lawfully obtained i never sold it to anyone i've heard those stories that i sold it to brandy or gave it to brandy or gave it to wayne none of that's true it's my character it always has been i i haven't been in a wwe ring in 22 years and i still get royalty money every quarter from that character so that's mine it doesn't belong to anyone else it was never sold to anyone else huh okay because I, cause I always wondered what that was. I, I'd, I'd seen various videos and heard various interviews, and I'm like, what the hell is this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, uh, like that um, that State Farm commercial, I think it was, it used to be out about a year or so ago, and the guy goes, you can't believe everything you hear on the Internet. <laughs> and uh, so that's, that's the skinny of that. <laughs> oh, goodness. So you go to... 
you, when you, um, how did they approach you to come to the Global Wrestling Federation? Were you already kind of on the ends with somebody there, or was it just well, kind of? When the when the AWA folded up and just went, I mean, they rolled over and died like an old dead dog on the side of the road. You know, all four <laughs> limbs were up in there, and they were bloated and swollen and done. Yeah, and there had been rumor and talk of a potential company coming along called the Global Wrestling Federation and Bill Eady and Joe Petticino and Bonnie Blackstone yeah. uh, were sort of going to be the uh, the minds behind this thing, the creative part of it, the bookers. Uh, and uh, rumor had it that this rich man from Africa was literally set to dump millions upon millions of dollars into this and make it a viable third option the WWF and WCW at the time. Wow. And those rumors, they kept persisting, but nothing ever materialized. And we kept hearing about it, and I would get updates from Joe and uh, from Bill Eady. And this very rich man from Nigeria, uh, I guess, really never had the money that he claimed to have and uh, just strung them along. But they were able to save it by finding a local investor a lady by the name of Carol Lindsay that had done very well in real estate in the Atlanta area. And uh, so she dumped a good bit of money into the GWF to get it up and running. And now once it was determined that this was actually going to happen and that we would do all our TV tapings at the Sportatorium in Dallas, the, yeah. the iconic building, and uh, I got a call uh, from Billy, and uh, he said, in two weeks, we're going to be doing our very first TV taping, and we want you there. We're going to FedEx you a ticket, and we'll tape on Friday night and Saturday night. We'll fly in Friday. We'll tape Friday night, Saturday night. We'll fly you back home Sunday. And that was all that was said to me. And the week before, I got my tickets via FedEx. I packed my trooper gear, and off to Dallas, Texas, I went, prepared wow. to do the very first TV taping for Global. Now, we all, when I say we all, the talent from, you know, from Bill and Bonnie and, and Joe um, and, the, and all the workers, all the boys, we all stayed at the same hotel. So literally about four hours before we worked to go to the sportatorium and start taping, uh, I got a call from Joe Petacino and he said, hey, man, he said, I'm in a room, such and such. He said, do you mind walking across the parking lot? He said, uh, Bonnie and I, along with Billy, we want to talk to you. We've got an idea. And I said, sure, I'll be there in just a minute. Now, remember, this was the time when Iraq had gone in and occupied Kuwait. Mm -hmm. George H.W. Bush, our president, had sent our troops in to liberate Kuwait. So we had the war going on in the Middle East. And when stuff like that happens, at least initially, patriotism just jumps through the roof. It's at a very oh, yeah. high level. Oh, yeah. Everybody supported the war effort. So when I get to Joe's room, they start laying out this idea of a character, a patriotic character. And Bonnie, Joe's wife, literally had one of those old-timey brown paper bags, grocery bags. And um, she pulled it and pulled it up and, and unfolded it, and she reached in, and she pulled out a red, white, and blue mask, red, white, and blue tights, and red, white, and blue trunks. And then she had a box, and she opened it up, and there was this Abel Lincoln-looking smokestack hat that was about 10 inches high, and it was in red, white, and blue. 
and they said, here's our idea. We want to take advantage of the, where patriotism's at right now. And we think you're the guy to do it. We're going to call you the patriot. And you're going to be a flag-waving, baby-kissing, high-fiving son of a gun, just a white meat baby face. And uh, I said, I'll tell you what. I said, I'll do it with one exception. And they said, what's that? I said, I refuse to wear that smoke jacket Uncle Sam hat. I said, you do away with it. You got the deal. <laughs> but I'm not wearing that stupid-looking thing. And uh, so they said, yeah, that's fine. So that night, uh, I think that was June or July, maybe 91, uh, I think it was. And uh, when that character, when I walked down the aisle that night at the Sportatorium, that was the first time those wrestling fans had ever seen that character. And that building erupted. Those people went nuts. And before I ever <laughs> stepped into the ring, I knew that we were on to something good. Just by the reaction. Fantastic. So now what What? Um, what happened to have the, oh, you go from there to, was it All Japan next? Yeah, I had done one tour, as we called them, for All Japan back in 89. And I was working as a trooper. Okay. And, um, and I was really unprepared for what I was about to deal with. Uh, I went on a three-week tour, and um, All Japan was a different beast. Uh, throughout the 90s, I'll argue with anybody, uh, and I'm, I'm right, it was the most successful company on the face of the world as far as pro wrestling is concerned throughout the 90s. Nobody did the business All Japan did. Nobody had the quality of matches that they did. It was just an, a wonderful time for business, and uh, one of the best decades ever that any promotions ever had. But it was a different style. All Japan did no promos for their TV show. There were no interviews. There were no promos. There were no managers. Every match had a one, two, three clean finish. There was no double DQs, outside interference, double counters, none of that stuff. It was all based on the action in the ring and the excitement that you could generate during your finish. And I had never done anything like that. And it was more physical as well. So those three weeks, I literally was just lost. And I mean, I stunk up the joint. I got back home and I told my wife, I said, well, I said, that'll be my one and only tour of all Japan. I'll never go back. I said, I just, I said, they just blew my doors off. I was unprepared for this. And I was still young in the business. Well, um, you know, now the trooper, I mean, the Patriot comes along. And I'm a little more experienced, and I've learned a lot more, and I'm better in the ring. So I got uh, another chance to go back. And uh, I went back in June of 92, and it was a three-week tour. And three nights into it, Mr. Baba, who owned All Japan, approached me and said, look, we want you to work here full-time, be a part of this company. Now, you did not sign contracts with Baba. Everything with Baba was his handshake and his word. And uh, he never broke his word. So uh, then I went to work for them uh, after I left Global. Now, how much was, uh, was the competition between them and New Japan at the time? Was New Japan just starting? or No, New Japan was very well established. They were a very well established business. But New Japan presented more of an American product. Where okay. You did have interviews and you did have managers and you know that would interfere in the ring and affect the outcome of a match 
All Japan had none of that. It was just straight wrestling. So there was a unique, there was definitely a difference in style between those, but both were very successful. Okay, now the, um, were you guys figured in as the faces or are you the heels? Because when they paired you off with um, uh, Jackie Fulton under the mask as the eagle, were you guys the heels or faces or was it kind of uh, in between? That did not exist in Japan. There was no heel. There was no baby okay. face. It, um, it did not exist. Jackie and I could, could be in a tag match one night and uh, for the tag team belt. And then two nights later, we're in a singles match working against each other. Uh, that was just the nature of Baba's business at the time and the way he did it. Again, there were no angles. There were no programs. Uh, it was just we sold tickets and put butts in seats and had viewers based on the quality of the match. And that's why those matches throughout the 90s in all Japan were, were un, unmatched. Well, you know, no pun intended, but yeah. uh, there was no company on the planet that could touch what all Japan was doing that decade. Now, what was it like being in the ring? Because, you know, you're a, you're a big, agile, extremely strong guy. And when you and Jackie got put against Furnace and Crawford for the All-Asia Tag Team titles, what was it like with Doug Furnace? Because, I mean, he was just ungodly strong. And, I mean, for his legs and stuff, you wouldn't think he could jump like he did. But I yeah. was, you know, that drop kick was probably one of the best I've seen. It was, it was always fun. Um, Doug and I got to be very best friends. I had never met Doug until I went to work and did that very first tour for Baba. And Doug wasn't the easiest guy to get to know. Doug stayed to himself. He was quiet. Uh, but I knew of Doug. I knew that he was a heck of a football player at the University of Tennessee. And I knew that he was one of the greatest, and still is, one of the greatest, one of the five greatest power lifters that's ever lived. Doug yep. was a freak. And um, so we actually hit it off and got to be very close friends. And uh, uh, Doug and I did everything together in Japan and um, went out to eat at night. We worked out together on off days. We went to see movies together. But we worked out together, and I was always a gym rat. And uh, it was a wonderful opportunity for me to work out with one of the greatest powerlifters ever and learn some things and uh, pick up some techniques from Doug. But him and Danny, uh, a coffee, Phil's his real name, but they were a wonderful tag team because they had they complemented each other well. Uh, Crawford had an unbelievable mind for the business. He was wonderful at creating finishes and spots throughout the course of a match. And then Doug, and I played with the Heisman Trophy winner. I played against guys in college that went on to be great NFL players that are in the Hall of Fame. Yep. But it's not even close. Hands down, Doug Furness is the greatest athlete that I have ever met in my life. And the things he could do was phenomenal. So Jackie and I always look forward to working with those guys because, one, we knew we were going to have fun. And, secondly, we knew that we, we never had a bad match with those guys. We just meshed well together. And I would let Doug do things to me in a ring that I would let nobody else do. He had this one move where he would grab you around the waist, your your back would be against his belly, and he would throw you and flip you over, and you would land on your chest. 
Jesus. And uh, I would have never, never let anybody do that to me. But I'll let Doug do it because, I, know, I mean, Doug could do it. Doug could yank me out of my boots if he wanted to. So um, I had that much confidence in Doug's strength and ability. But to always have a good time working with those two men, always. Okay. Ernest just had those ungodly, like, big, you know, legs <laughs> and stuff. They were and yeah, there's guys that Go didn't ahead. have waist that big, you know. I mean, <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how he could throw a drop kick like he did. Because, I mean, Furnace could jump and get about even at six-foot level from a stand, you know. Wow. I'm just like, yeah. how does he do that? <laughs> yeah. He was uh, he was explosive. You know, he, um, he was the first guy ever. And I'm not talking about some power meet that was thrown together at your local high school gym. I'm talking about in a well-regulated professional power meet uh, where things are done the right way and, and they're yeah. done at the highest professional level in that business. Doug was the first guy to ever total 2,500 oh, with the three lifts, the, the bench, holy the, uh, the deadlift, and the squat. And he did it twice. And uh, wow. he had like a 605, 610 bench. He had a 995 squat and then whatever his score was on the deadlift. And uh, you can catch Doug doing some squats on YouTube. I'm, I'm glad we have YouTube. And Doug's back was always straight. He never went. For, he was never leaning forward. He had perfect form, and he would slowly drop, and he would get to that point, and he would stop and pause, and then he would just smoothly come right back up with 995 pounds on his back. He wow. was a stud. Yeah, I would say so with that. Now, did you um, enjoy more? Because I know you went over to All Japan as the singles first, then they paired you guys together. What did you enjoy more, the singles or the tag team? Well, I'll be honest with you, I enjoyed the tag team more because we did eight tours. Uh, Mr. Baba only ran 28 weeks a year. Yeah. And uh, I would do every tour, and those 28 weeks were broken down into eight tours. Most of the tours were three weeks long. There were two that were a month, and then there was one that was two weeks long, and that was the February tour. But the biggest tour, the most important tour uh, throughout the year was the tag tour, which was November, December. Yep. And at the end of that tour, they would, you know, crown the new tag team champs. And uh, I enjoyed the tag match because instead of three guys in the ring, including the ref, now you've got five guys in the ring, and there's so much more you can do. There's so much more action going on. You've got the ref dis distracted over here, and Bell and Doug are outside on the floor doing something, and Prophet and Fulton are inside the ring. And you've just got so – it's like a three-ring circus, and it's just so much stuff going on. So I enjoyed over there. I enjoyed the tag team aspect of it. That's fantastic. Oh, yeah. I've always liked tag team better, too, because you didn't have to worry about gassing yourself as much either. That's, that's right. Absolutely. You could, you know, tag out and let your partner go in and, and do what he needed to do for a while. And, uh, yeah, totally agree. Uh, so you go from all Japan. How did you end up in WCW? Did you know somebody or were you just ready to come home for a while or? Hold on one second. You, you guys are recording this. Oh yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. A little bit of ice here. I can put in the cup. So, if you'll give me a second, I uh, 
Well, we've got uh, while, while while the Patriot gets himself some ice, which is awesome. We have got uh, <laughs> Del Welks, the Patriot, with us tonight here on our Thursday Night Wrestling Show, or famously known as the Master of Pain in Wichita, yes. Kansas. Famously known as the Master of Pain in in the great air capital of Wichita, Kansas, and uh, <laughs> I think that was that's the biggest gimmick he ever did. I mean, you know. <laughs> Forget about anything oh, else that he did. Forget about the trooper. Forget about the patriot. Forget about any of that. It was the master of pain in the air capital of Wichita, Kansas. Most famous gimmick All right, ever. I have got my ice cup filled up. Now, the way that I ended up in WCW yes. is uh, Bischoff was running WCW. And this was in the early 90s. And I had developed a very good friendship with Eric from my time in the AWA. He was our TV guy. He yep. Yep. Uh, That's right. The matches. And uh, also, Greg Gagne um, was in WCW. At that time, WCW was booking by committee, and they had a bunch of them. And Greg Gagne was one of them on the booking committee. So that connection and that relationship with Greg and with uh, Eric, led to Eric giving me a call one day and um, asking me to drive over to Atlanta. I only live three hours from Atlanta. He said, let's just sit down and talk and see if we can't have something out. We'd like for you to come to work with us. And I'll be honest with you, as much as I love Japan and I still consider Japan the highlight of my career, due to the nature of those matches that I was telling you about, where everything, everything was based on the believability, the quality of the match. It lent itself to be a much more physical style than anything else. And um, I was starting to have some issues with knees and stuff like that. And uh, also, I wanted to be close to close, huh? Can you hear me? Yeah, we got you. We got you. We're we're just listening to you. (laughs) I wanted... I wanted to be closer to home. I've had the experience in Japan of when my daughter was um, born that I almost missed it because I was on another on the other side of the world. And uh, only the fact that my wife was about a week overdue was I able to make it home and be here for her birth. And um, I just wanted my body was starting to get beat up a little bit, and I liked the idea of getting back in the states where. If you're in L.A., if you're on the other side of the country and something happens and you need to get home quick, you're only four hours away, whereas in Japan, you're 24 hours away. Oh, yeah. And um, so Eric called me, and we we had a meeting and, and worked out a three-year deal. And um, so I went to work for WCW. And uh, now I did not fulfill the three years of my contract. Uh, things just and it, they didn't end up good in, in WCW. And um, when um, when I first got there, I was a singles wrestler, and then they came to me with the idea of putting Bagwell and I together in, in a tag team called Stars and Stripes. And I was perfectly fine with that. I'd known Marcus since the global days when he was doing the handsome stranger. Oh yeah. And uh, I remember the handsome stranger. Yeah. He was in Burt Prentice's UCW also, I think just right after you went down, he was there for a little bit. He'd just come from Georgia. So. Yeah. And 
he Marcus has always been, and he still remains one of my best friends that I've got today. But he was always a hard worker. Yeah, he was dedicated to his craft. Always concerned about how he looked and how he worked. And so I thought, yeah, I'll be perfectly fine with this. But it wasn't long after that that they got the big coup. WCW did. They lured Hogan away from Vince, and they bring in Hogan and they bring in Savage and. They bring in some other guys off the WWF roster at the time. And all of a sudden, everything in WCW became Hulk Hogan and Hulk Hogan's buddies. And I understand you've got maybe the biggest name in the history of wrestling at that time in Hogan, and you've just signed him away from Vince. And that's a big deal, and you need to focus a lot of your business around him. I get it. But you still have to have a supporting cast to make this thing work. And you can't do it just on one guy and one guy alone. Uh, but the focus certainly became then about Hogan and Hogan's friends. It was who Hogan wanted push and who Hogan wanted in certain positions. And uh, they were doing very little with the tag team guys. And we had good tag teams there. Uh, Stars and Stripes. Uh, we had Harlem Heat. We had Nasty Boys. We had Pretty Wonderful, which was Paul Roma and Paul Orndorff. But they just basically killed off the tag team division and uh, I just grew very unhappy with it and about a year and a half in I went to Eric and said dude I want out I understand I committed myself to three years here but Eric is doing very little with any of these tag teams and I feel like I'm just sort of floating around here with no direction and you really have no intentions of doing anything with me I've got a chance to go back and work for Bobla if you'll let me out of my contract the people in America will not see me. That Japanese TV only runs in Japan. And the only people in America that will see it will be some of the folks that buy the tapes from, from Japan. But basically, I'm gone. Yeah, I won't be a threat to you. I'm in another part of the world. Just let me go where I can go work and be happy. And he wouldn't do it. And uh, so about two weeks later, we were to be in Tupelo, Mississippi for um, uh, either a live show on a Saturday night or a pay-per-view. Yeah, I think it was, was Slamboree. Yeah, I think it was Slamboree. Okay. And um, I'll let Marcus know because I owed it to Marcus, but I didn't tell anybody else. I was on a plane. I was supposed to be in Tupelo, and I was on a plane back to Tokyo, Japan. <laughs> and um, That's awesome. I, uh, I landed in Tokyo. I called my wife at the time, and she said, you've got to get Eric off my butt. She said, he is just calling here nonstop threatening to sue us, and I said, just ignore the calls. Let it go to voicemail. Don't answer it. When it goes to voicemail, erase it. Ignore him. And I said, ignore the letters. Throw them away. I was going to be in Japan for a month. Yeah. I said, I promise you, if you'll just ignore him, he'll eventually go away. And he did. And uh, so uh, I was back in Japan for another couple of years. In. Now, about that, yes, I did some research, don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> um, I always drive Jiggy crazy because I'm such a wrestling freak. I find all these weird little things. <laughs> okay, you went in as the singles for a while, then you and Johnny Ace and Kenta Kabashi became like a three-man team or something. Can you we explain did. what Team Get is? Global something. I, global, I don't know what there the East... Yeah, Global Energetic tough i think was what the team was all about okay and um 
and again, tag team wrestling was a big deal in Japan. And, um, so, um, I like the idea of being with those two guys, especially Kabashi. Um, to this day, I think the greatest worker that's ever lived is Kabashi. Um, if you, I have my top five and he's number one. And uh, so I was glad to be teamed up with him. And I had teamed up with Kabashi earlier. We'd been a tag team. My first go round with Baba. And then also, too, we had some excellent matches against each other just in singles competition. And in the wrestling business, there are some people that you can just mesh with and you can go out and be blindfolded and have a good match. There's other people that, for whatever reason, you just don't mesh. Your styles don't mesh. And no matter how hard you work, you just you just don't have good matches. But with Kabashi, I never had a bad match, whether he was my opponent or my tag team partner. So uh, I was um, I was excited to be a part of that. And um, But now, this was my second go-round in Japan, and this is where the injuries started having a major, major impact on my career. And what eventually, in my career, I had uh, I'd blown my knee out in the ring one tour. And it was about two weeks in on the three-week tour, and I literally couldn't walk. Yeah. So they just took me off the road and um, uh, put me up at a hotel there in Tokyo right next to a hospital where I could get treatment every day on the knee. And, um, and then once that got a little better... Um, I blew my tricep out in the ring oh, and Jeez. I literally ripped it off the tendon off the bone. So I came back to the States, had surgery to repair it. And the doctor said, look, dude, he said, based on the type of work you do and the physicality of what you do for a living, you need to take about a year off for this thing to heal and make sure that it's grown back to the bone, the tendon has. And uh, if you work in an office behind the desk, I'd send you back to work next week, but you don't do that and you need to take some time to let this heal. Well, I heard him, but I did not listen to him. And uh, yeah. within five months, I was back in Japan, uh, wow. ready to go. And this was another three-week tour, and about 10 days into the three-week tour, my tricep ripped again. Oh, and yeah. um, so I was having major, major, major physical problems. And um, fortunately, Vince reached out to me, um, Jim Ross called me, Cornette called me, Bruce Pritchett called me. I knew all those guys and they were all working for Vince at the time and, uh, wanted me to come meet with Vince. And I had worked for Vince briefly in the uh, early nineties. Rick Martell had got hurt and missed several weeks. So I filled in for him. So Vince and I knew each other and were familiar with each other. But this time I flew up and met him and, and, and signed a three year deal with him. But I did so knowing that I was just damaged goods big time. And yeah. uh, I had no clue how long I would make it into that three-year deal. I told my wife when I signed it, I said, I'll never see the end of this contract. Uh, I was in that kind of physical condition, and sure enough, I didn't. Well, I know fairly recently uh, you were the topic of discussion on uh, Bruce Pritchard's podcast, and he was talking about the fact that you'd signed that deal and you didn't let him know that you were hurt and everything. And, and, and he's like, but it, he was like, if he didn't have that injury, he goes, who knows how far he would have went? Cause 
you know, Bruce put you over and said you were a good athlete. So, yeah, I, I heard that, and um, I appreciate Bruce doing that. Bruce and I got to know each other well when I was in Global, and Bruce came in there and worked is in, in Global as well for a while. Yeah, and um, I tell you what I did, and uh, certainly not the right thing to do, but at the time I thought it was a necessary thing to do. Yeah. Things were different back then. In 97, when Vince offered me a three-year deal, he mailed me the contract. I had my had an attorney look at it, and I signed it, mailed it back. They then mailed me the forms where I could get a physical and could choose any doctor I wanted. Yeah. Nowadays, that's done under much stricter guidelines. Their doctors do the physical. Yeah. But yeah. I had a buddy of mine that was a doctor that lived in uh, Indianapolis, and he was sort of the doctor to all the guys. If you needed uh, a prescription of Percocet or sleeping pills or muscle relaxers, you called this particular doctor and you had it. He would call it in and he, he did that for all the boys. He just was a pill machine. Yeah. And um, so I sent him the physical and I said, just make me look good. And he never just saw me. He never me laid a hand good. on me. That's awesome. And uh, he gave me a clean bill of health and sent it back to Vince and, uh, you know, I knew he had lied, and I knew that I had, you know, encouraged him to lie. Yeah. Uh, but the money that I had in that three-year deal was a lot of money. Well, yeah. And I just was hoping I could get through as much of it as I could. Well, and it's it's one of those things where, you know, you you do what you can, and I have I have heard over the years that that guys in the NFL and guys in the NBA and stuff have done the exact same thing. So it's 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 not just a uh, it's not just a you thing. <laughs> there's there, there's lots of people that are like, I gotta get this money. <laughs> it's gotta absolutely, help. And, and especially when and especially when you know, uh, and we all know our bodies very well. But especially when you know that you are just beat down. And yeah. uh, I've had surgeries. I needed surgeries. So I knew that I had a short window there and uh, that I needed to get as much money as I could. And uh, so I just, you know, I thought, well, it's not the right thing to do. But right now it's a necessary thing to do. So I'm just going to gimmick this uh, physical up or get the doctor to do it. And he did. And, yep, yeah, to their to their surprise, later on they found out that you know I, I was not truthful in that uh, in that physical report. Well, you had a tremendous feud uh, while you were in WWF with with Bret Hart. Mm-hmm. That was that was a heck of a deal. What were some of your memories of that? It was good timing. Um, Bret was the face of the company at the time. And um, they were in the process of turning him heel, and uh, which meant that this Canadian guy that left his country to come <laughs> to our country to make a living uh, was now putting the boots to the American wrestling fans yep. and calling them pigs and calling them all these horrible names. Well, in walks this guy that is literally draped in the flag. Uh, waves the flag, calls himself the Patriot, and he's going to take on this evil Canadian that is now bad-mouthing the American people, the American wrestling fans. So 
the timing of it couldn't have been better in that sense, and uh, it just felt like a glove. Uh, Brett worked m- more of that Japanese style that I was used to. It was a little snug, which I was fine with. I was used to that in Japan. And when Brett got in the ring, it was serious business. And I was the same way. I never one time wanted to get into a ring and make somebody laugh. I wanted them to believe. I never wanted to do a comedy spot. I was never interested in that. I wanted them to believe what we were doing was real and make it look as real as possible. And Brett had the same mindset. And uh, so it worked well. It was just a natural fit, a good fit. And it was a good program while it lasted. Unfortunately, those injuries that I brought to town with me just, um, you know, didn't, would not allow it to last longer than it did, but it worked well. And I'll tell you also what was unique about it, guys, is we worked all over the United States with it, and he was the heel, I was the babyface. We had a tour where we went across Canada with it, maybe about a two-week tour. We were in Seattle one night, worked Seattle. I was the babyface, Brett was the heel, he was getting booed, I was getting applauded. The next day, we catch a ferry, and we go up the west coast of Canada, and uh, and then we start on the west coast and work our way across. And all of a sudden, within 24 hours, just because of geography, Brett's the baby face, and I'm the heel. And that gave it a very interesting dynamic. And uh, the people in Canada love Brett. I can't remember what city we were in, but I was telling this story the other night, and I'll never forget it. Uh, I don't know, maybe Saskatchewan. Uh, it could have even been uh, Brett's hometown of Calgary. Yeah. But it was during this loop when we were crossing Canada, that, and we were always working main events, so we were the last match. I'm not exaggerating. Throughout the course of what was supposed to be about a 20-minute match, there were five different guys that came and tried to get into the ring to come after me. <laughs> Thank goodness security wow. was there to, to pull them out. And then the sixth guy literally got into the ring and was Holy coming smokes. after me. And the referee tackled him and security pulled him out. And Brett and I, right there in the ring in the middle of a match, decided we got to end this thing now for my safety and get me out of here. So we finished the match real quick. I went straight from the ring to the dressing room. There were cops. There were probably four or five cops waiting there. Wow. I gave them my car keys. They went and got my rental car and pulled it down right next to the building. They said, you do not have time to shower. You do not have time to change. Get in your rental car, and we will escort you to your hotel. So I had a police escort to the hotel. (laughs) And when I got to the hotel, the wrestling fans always knew where the wrestlers were going to stay. Oh, yeah. The lobby was full. The lobby was full of Canadian wrestling fans. And I'm literally being escorted through the hotel lobby with (laughs) cops, five cops. They take me to my room, and when I get into my room before I close the door, one of the cops said, do not leave your room or the room service. If you don't want room service, let me know what you want now. I'll go get it, and I'll bring it back to you. But if you leave this room without us here, you'll do so at your own risk and your own peril. You better lock your butt in this room tonight. And I did. But that was how intense that thing had gotten going across Canada with it. (laughs) Oh, my God. That is a hell of a story. Thank you for telling that. (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> that is, I had, that is, you I've know. I've never experienced anything like that. Wow. You know, that they, they, they always say, you know, uh, part, part of the allure of wrestling is that you've got to believe. Those people believed. <laughs> Holy okay. shit. <laughs> you better believe. Wow. And that's what wrestling, guys, that's what wrestling is, is, is missing today. You wanted the fans to have somebody a wrestler that they had an emotional attachment to that they believed in that they, they, they looked to it or, or someone that they hated so bad that they just, I mean, they couldn't wait for that baby face to destroy him. And it used to be the business was that way where you could create a strong, strong emotional attachment or emotional hatred for a wrestler, whether you were baby faced or heel. And that just, that quality just doesn't exist today. Yeah. Wow. That is an awesome story. I'm just like, <laughs> that was. I'm awestruck on that one. I knew it was heavy duty up there, but I didn't realize it was that didn't, bad. Didn't realize it was, a, Dale, it, was it, it, it was that crazy up there in, in, in Canada. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah, knew they didn't they, like they, Shawn Michaels. But. Yeah. <laughs> well, they they were in love with the Hart family, That you know, the wrestling fans in oh, Canada. Oh, yeah. And the Hart family walked on water. And here I am in the middle of his home country trying to rip his head off. And that one night, there were six guys out there that just didn't take it anymore. <laughs> they were coming after me. They were coming to get the Patriot. <laughs> Hell, who knows? Maybe, and I'm sure this was probably not the case. This is just me, this is just me being, being a wrestling mark. Maybe there were dark Patriot fans from the old GWS. <laughs> <laughs> they could have been. exactly right. And they, and they were wanting Brett to take care of some unfinished business. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, well, Dale, as we wrap up here with you, my friend, um, looking back on on your on your sports career, whether it was football, uh, pro wrestling, uh, what 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 do you what do you think of all this, my friend? You've been around the world several times and back. Well. I'm fortunate. Um, as a little kid growing up in Columbia, South Carolina, and like I mentioned earlier, growing up in a family full of Gamecock fans, I was a Gamecock sports fanatic, but especially football. Yes. And I went to see my first live wrestling match when I was 10 years old uh, at the Township Auditorium here in Columbia. It was a small venue that was just perfect for wrestling, and I my first match that I went to, the main event was Rip Hawk and Sweet Hanson against the Briscoe Brothers. So there were two things that just, I, I was just crazy about as a kid, and that was Gamecock football and pro wrestling. And I'm very fortunate, not many people get to do this, but I got to fulfill both dreams of being a Gamecock football player and doing it, doing it at a very high level, and then I got to fulfill the dream of wanting to be a professional wrestler that night when I saw Jack and Jerry Briscoe in the ring, they were my idols when I would watch them on TV. And little did I know that years down the road, I would get to know both of those guys and become friends with them. And uh, so, man, I have been fortunate to literally on two occasions live out a childhood dream. That's awesome. And you got to wrestle awesome. in Wichita, Kansas. That too. 
And I got, <laughs> yes, sir. And I was the master of pain for a brief period of time. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was such a good gimmick. They had to cut it off because they were afraid it was going to go wild. So. <laughs> Yeah, they they were afraid it would just overshadow everybody. Hey, you are one of the two biggest guys I ever met in the business. You and Billy Gunn, when I was up close, are two of the most massive guys I've ever met. <laughs> well, that was uh, I appreciate that. That was I was blessed with good size and um, and then getting in a weight room. And I figured this as well: if I'm going to make a living without a shirt on. I better look good without a shirt on. <laughs> and he always had to go sideways through doorways because his shoulders were so wide. <laughs> Those were the good days. That's great. Well, uh, well, Dale, this has definitely been an honor and a privilege. Thank you for chatting with me and John tonight. It was it, it was a blast, my friend. Well, I appreciate it. I enjoyed it as well, and I thank you guys both for for uh, letting me be a part of this and. Uh, for asking me to be a part of the show. I appreciate it. I hope y'all have a good night. Definitely. Thanks, definitely. And I would love to have you back at some point and uh, and talk some politics with you, if that's possible. Absolutely. You just <laughs> let me know that's, that's another subject I love to discuss. I know. I'd love to talk to you. Well, Dale, have yourself a wonderful evening. Thank you, sir. All right, guys. Y'all have a good one, too. Thank you, man. And uh, thanks to John right. Mosier as well. And uh, that wraps it up here uh, for the Thursday Night Wrestling Show. And uh, next week, God, who knows what the hell we're going to do next week. Uh, we, we, we've, had like, we've had like four tremendous shows in a row. So uh, who knows? Maybe we'll get brother on next week. Doubt it. But... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh who knows who knows i'm i'm pulling him out of the hat baby baby an incredible new marketing partner today at transmedia worldwide check out kickstarter.com kickstarter.com your freedom mask show your face the new innovative u.s patent pending design incorporates two high efficiency kn95 filters it's fully transparent it's available at kickstarter.com that's k-i-c-k-s-t-a-r-t-e-r.com search your freedom mask show your face and tell them you heard about it here transmedia worldwide an incredible new marketing partner with us today in Transmedia Worldwide. Introducing Jacques Neal, a fresh and new watch company with beautiful trend-setting watches and an affordable price. Follow us on Instagram, Jacques Neal Watches. Support the campaign at Indiegogo.com. Search Jacques Neal. Affordable, quality, beautiful watches. That's I-N-D-I-E-G-O-G-O.com. And tell them you heard about it here. Transmedia Worldwide. Jacques Neal. Incredible new marketing partner with us today, Transmedia Worldwide. Kickstarter.com is the place to go because Black Lives Matter. Go over. Grow Connect. Oh, that's right. We need you to check this one out today. It is Grow Connect, a delivery and sharing economy app that will allow farmers to sell quality produce and land rentals directly to quality-driven consumers and potential land tenants, creating a friendly, rewarding, and efficient relationship between those who produce food, small and medium-sized farmers, and those who buy it, as well as those who want land to farm or garden on it. Check it out today. It's kickstarter.com. Search Grow Connect, connecting farmers to consumers, and tell them you heard about it here. Transmedia 
Worldwide. Incredible new marketing partner with us today at Transmedia Worldwide. Check out coffeesoundsgood.org. That's right. Coffee does sound good right now. Check out coffeesoundsgood.org. They have got everything you could ever think of available over there, and they have a special sale right now. Through the end of August, 20% off everything in store. It's coffeesoundsgood.org. Coffee does sound good over there at coffeesoundsgood.org. Check it out today and tell them you heard about it here. Transmedia Worldwide. Incredible new marketing partner with us today at Transmedia Worldwide. Thanks for joining us today here on iHeartRadio and also AMFM247.com. Tune in, iTunes, and Radio Loyalty, 50-plus AMFM stations across the country and around the world. Great new marketing partner with us today. Check out GoFundMe.com. Search Freedom Once Held Hostage. Helped blossom. That's right. You can take a look and check out the story. It is an incredible one over at GoFundMe.com. Freedom Once Held Hostage. Help getting belongings. We need you to help these folks out today. Phyllis Stanford is with us today. She is distressing during the difficult times. Homelessness, suicide is on the rise. Given the uncertainty of the pandemic, some of us are facing unemployment. The shutdowns continue and will continue in the venues that affect my work. I've always been ambitious and driven. A little about my personal side is available at GoFundMe.com. Search Freedom Once Held Hostage, Help Getting Belongings, and tell them you heard about it here. Transmedia Worldwide. More right now. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. 